I make the comment in Faith Runs Deep Episode 5 that there are times you meet someone who shares a passion for the gospel, a passion for our country, and a passion for ministry. It's like you've grown up as brothers. That's how I felt talking with Tony Huang in the middle of bustling Cabramatta. While in many ways our stories are completely different, the similarities are remarkable. Second-generation immigrants, our parents left war-torn countries and settled in Australia with next to nothing. With a difficult family life, Tony's desire for love and acceptance led him to joining a local gang with ever-increasing crimes and dangers. Now he's a pastor at a church in the area where he used to deal drugs. Tony's conversion story is both miraculous and humorous, as only God can do. I'm Carl Fays, and this is my interview with Tony Huang. So, where are we, Tony? Well, this is Cabramatta. This is my hometown. Is that right? Um, it, what's this place called? This is Freedom Plaza, but uh, locals know it as BKK. It's the main area, really, where, we, where people gather, you know? How did your family come to be in Australia? Um, they came over on a boat, you know, right? So obviously they escaped the Vietnam War and um, along with, uh, I, I believe, 90 other family members on a boat. And they came over here in um, 1980. And uh, so I was born here. And they came to this area? Uh, no, we actually stayed in uh, Bondi. Mm -hmm. uh, rather than move to go into uh, Villawood Detention Centre, a few of us got moved to, uh, to Bondi. So I grew up uh, in Bondi uh, probably for a couple of years till yep. we moved and migrated here. Yeah. When you came here, uh, and, and as you were growing up, what was your communication between your parents? Because did they know English? No, look, because uh, they, they all they gathered together and they all all they spoke was Vietnamese. I grew up in that environment, and I was at home. And until I started school, it was very difficult in the sense of continuing that language because all you spoke was English. Yeah. yeah. So coming home was just basic, hey, you know, it's, it's food's ready, go take out the rubbish, and real basic sort of communication. So yeah. How my, many brothers and sisters? I'm one of ten. Okay. One of ten. So it's a busy household. You're not communicating particularly well with your parents. Yeah, so it was very difficult, just easy to fall through the cracks because mum and dad would be working, yeah. trying to make ends meet. Yeah. You know, when dad was in Bondi, he was a fisherman. Yeah. And what mum would do is uh, she'll get all the fish, chuck them in the boot of a car and go around selling them. <laughs> and that, that, was, that was their money? Yeah, that was their bread and butter. They tried to, you know, um, try to make, you know, $100 out of a dollar, you know, and then they, they managed and uh, dad became a painter. Mm -hmm. And still, till this day, never spoke a word of English, but his, his work is phenomenal. Wow. Very good with his hands. You got into high school and things started to go off the rails for you. What happened, Tony? Yeah, so um, growing up, it was, dad was, wasn't really home. And so, although he was a good provider, he wasn't there for me physically, for, you know, words of affirmation, rather that he would actually try to drown his sorrows away on, uh, on, on alcohol. Wow. Yep. So it would be very abusive. And so um, that led me to look to other role models rather than my father. And so going into school, very difficult going from one place to the next place because I grew to resent my father. Mm. And, uh, but I eventually came the person I hated. <laughs> okay. Violent like my father. Really? And it started all in year seven. Yeah. And so I got expelled there from um, from bashing, bashing a guy and then three schools after for the same thing within four years, three different schools. And so I was just a bit of a, bit of a trouble kid. Wow. Where did, you, where did you link up with people? What was your community if your family wasn't? 
Yeah, so it was in high school. So around about that time, Cabramatta was infested with gangs. All right, this is where, you know, a whole bunch of the refugee kids came together with, with no parents. And they came, they terrorized this community. They did, uh, you know, extortions and everything else. And a lot of my cousins got caught up in that. Yeah. And so going as a little kid and starting high school, now I'm at the school where my cousins are at. They're involved with all of that stuff. And so in a sense, I got grafted into that. And it made me feel like, I, no, this is my new family. This is my new community. Yeah. And that's what we did. We came and we, uh, after school, we'll come here and ro roam the streets, get involved with all kinds of mischief, you know? And, and when we're talking about that, we're talking about these streets. These streets right here. <laughs> and so um, right here at the train station, I've yeah. dealt drugs at this train station. So there's um, certain streets that um, uh, different people owned, right? And you couldn't deal drugs on that street. And so, yeah. you know, it was, all, it was all that going on underneath the surface. Now, my understanding is that the drug dealing wasn't necessarily people, you didn't sell to people here as much as others coming in. What oh. happened? Yeah, well, Cabramatta was, uh, began to be known as the drug capital of Australia. So we had people from Newcastle down from Katoomba. They'll travel all the way, come down here to get drugs. Wow. And so especially at the train station, that's the first point, because they're getting off the train from everywhere. And so you'll get a whole bunch of drug dealers at the station looking for the white guy coming off the train. Okay. Yeah. And so that, that, that was how it all went. Yeah, now you got caught? I got caught. And so, um, you know, it was very, you know, that, that was a shameful time. And so um, it was, it seemed like everyone at that period of time was doing it. Yeah. So it seemed like a normal thing. Yeah. I never went out of the area, always grew up here and that's all we knew. And so uh, it, was, uh, it was one time I was at this station before school and I sold to uh, a guy who happened to be an undercover cop. Uh, okay. Pulled me, put up against the fence and took me to jail and, and uh, or took me to the police station. And then I, I called my mum and said, you know what, mum, I messed up, come and get me. And uh, I remember vividly, she just said, you know what, Tony? You get yourself in this mess, get yourself out of it. She hangs up on me. <laughs> wow, how'd and that feel? Well, it, it, not good. It felt like, you know, I was uh, you know, already battling the struggle of trying to assimilate into, you know, uh, and, and, and get into to the, the, the school system and going from school to school. I was already, I already felt uh, rejected. Yeah, yeah. So for that too, on top of that, um, I eventually went in jail and I carried that, I guess, resentment and anger from my family situation inside jail. How long were you there for? Uh, a good couple of months. Yeah. When you came out, did you think I'm going to be reformed? Did you, did you think I'm going to start something new or did you just fall back into... Yeah, yeah you know what, Carl, the there, there was like a, a tug of war going on in my heart. Yeah. You know, when you're in jail, time stays still. Yeah. And all you've got to do is have is time to think. Yeah. And so I did think, hey, uh, you know, I, Mum and Dad didn't risk their lives coming over from Vietnam on a boat for me to live like this. Yeah. And so part of me was like, come out of here, make something of yourself, right? But the other side of me that wanted acceptance and affirmation and everything else was like, you know what? Stuff everyone. No one's there for me. And out of the whole gang, no one came to visit me. And so you can, you can tell yeah, the, yeah. The, 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 the mindset I had was, hey, I, I don't need you anyway. Yeah. And so I was, I was bitter, I was angry. And so that dark side of me was like, Let's just get out of here and show everybody you don't need nobody. Yeah. And uh, a couple of months pass, I was released and there I was confronted with that decision yeah. at 14 years old. Gosh, because you're only 14. I mean, you're very young still. Who won the tug of war? Well, I was the dark side for that time. Wow. You know, so I, I, I came out and although seeing my family there and mm. trying to go back to school, 
uh, it was still very difficult. Yeah. And because as being young, all I knew was how to deal drugs and be violent. And so when you, you know, when you're that age, you resort back to what you knew. Yeah. And so I, I, I bought a gun at 14 years old. I began to rent houses, right? Getting my older friends and my sister's boyfriend signing leases for me. And so I'm running drug, drug houses uh, in this area yeah. at 15 years old. Yeah. Yeah. And um, having, you know, um, my sister's boyfriends running drugs for me. So Tony, you weren't just dealing for somebody else. You were the one organizing deals. Yes, yeah, so I was dealing to the street dealers. And so I was raking in a lot of money at that time. You know, at a young age, I didn't even have a brain to know how to use what I earned. But I was making a hell of a lot of money. Yeah. So what happened? And so I, I, I guess on the outside, I brought a lot of stuff to make it seem like, yeah, I think life was good. But really on the inside, uh, all I wanted was a father. Yeah. I was broken inside, looking for answers. But on the outside, I seemed like I wanted to impress everybody. Yeah, yeah. Uh, did it come to some point of crisis? Yeah, and so um, I, I lost my best friend at 16 years old uh, to a heroin overdose. And it just seemed like every year after that, I begin to lose friends from, from shootings to suicides and overdoses. And so I'm 19 years old, I nearly get gunned down. Um, I get off drugs, and so I'm going from one drug to the next. So I'm just trying to fill this void that's in my life. Yeah. And up until yep. 21 years old, uh, I had enough of my life, Carl, and I just said, you know what, uh, enough's enough. I went to, uh, I got some drugs, and uh, I resorted to this. I just packed the, the syringe with as much drugs as I could, and I pumped myself, and I dropped to my knees. I started overdosing at 21. And it was at that point, two weeks after that, I just needed answers. I've tried everything. And, uh, and so uh, I, I, uh, it was the darkest period of my life. And so what I did is I booked myself into a treatment. Mm. And uh, prior to going on this treatment, I went to the church where I was raised up at. Mm. I got down on my knees, a broken man. I just cried out to God. No one was around. Yeah. I said, God, if you're there, just please give me a sign or something. You know, weeping and crying, just broken. Wow, it, it's interesting because it, this was a Catholic church, and where was that? It's just that was just down the road, just, just on down the road. On this street, right on this, on this street, street. Right and, on you, this and street. you're kneeling there by yourself in an empty Catholic church. You're crying out to God. Yeah. What happens? Do you do you feel anything? No, well, I, I felt some sort of relief. I don't know whether that was uh, just the release of my tears and pain. Yeah. But I got up from there and I went home. Yep. And the next day, I'm walking. I come out to Cabramatta early hours in the morning. Yep. Where they know me as a drug dealer. And here, right here at the mall, right here. was yep. the Protestant House Church, uh, impact team from Th Thomastown, singing and rapping. Yeah. I'm like, what's going on here? So I walk past and this guy hands me a flyer. And the flyer read, if you're looking for a sign from God, here it is. <laughs> that was on the 8th of February, 2004, that he shared the gospel with me. Yeah. He said, Tony, God loves you, he cares for you but sin stands in the way. And if you would repent of that, and put your faith in Christ, he could forgive you. And I was just sitting here and he asked me, Tony, do you want to pray with me? He said, I lifted up my hands and he said, you know, absolutely. And so I prayed right there on the street and no word of a lie, right on that bench over there. Really? Wow. I asked God into, to forgive me, asked Jesus into my heart. And in an instant, I started weeping and crying. And it was like, you know what? I became that little boy again that just wanted that father. And it's like my father in heaven came down and just said, son, it's all going to be all right. 
And I'll tell you what, from that day, on the 8th of February 2004, my life had completely turned around 180 degrees. Wow. So all those pieces in your background come together. Distance from your dad, looking for, for love and acceptance, a place to belong. That pours out in this moment? Yeah, right in that moment. Right in that moment was just a, was just a divine intervention. Yeah. That God really had to allow me to go through all those things, to knock me off my religious horse of pride, you know? Because yeah. I was very anti everything else. Even though I was a drug dealer, I thought I was a Christian. Yeah. But it was in that moment that God really spoke it in my heart that no one else saw me that day before crying yep. out to Him for a sign. Yep. Yep. So I was right there in that moment that God just really birthed uh, something new in my heart. Wow. And I walked home that day, Cal, and I was yep. looking at the grass. And I'm like, I want to kiss the grass. It's so beautiful. <laughs> I'm looking at the skies, the trees. It's just like those scales fell and I began to see life. The sun was shining. And I'm like, why didn't I see this before? Wow. Some people come to faith, Tony, and it's this sort of intellectual process of thinking through what they believe in. This was like this existential emo emotional moment for you. Yeah, and there was just something that I knew that, that something needed to change, something was missing. And even though I had and I was faithful to my religion, so to speak, yep. I was faithful to rituals, what I was missing was that relationship, yeah. that intimate, personal, deep relationship with my Creator, yeah. which all in that point in time, met me in one, one place. Yeah. And that was where God said, you know what, Tony? Now you realize who you are without me. Let me show you who you are in me. Wow. So you, you've come to faith, but your kind of career is as a, as a drug dealer. That's not gonna work out so well in the future. So what did you do? Yeah, so it's, um, it, was, it was a process, if I yeah. could say that. Uh, it started off with me wanting to, uh, just grateful to be in the house of God, to be among normal people. Yeah. About three weeks after salvation, I went to a Bible conference in Perth, Western Australia. And it was there that just, you know, new convert, you know, Adam from Eve. But uh, a call was made to preach the gospel. And if that's you, stand to your feet. And I was battling, wrestling, mm -hmm. but I stood to my feet and I said, God, if you can use a drug dealer, an educated person like myself, then I'm yours, just prepare me. So in the last 17 years, I'm seeing God's handiwork in everything that I'm doing. I'm, and I'm so grateful to see that His, His, His glory manifest in, in people getting saved and people you know, getting touched by the Word. And so that's my heart and my goal. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, it blows me away yeah. to look back yeah. from that seat to yeah. what God has done. Now, in this park, on a regular basis, you actually preach the gospel. Yeah, yeah. So um, the, today, I actually pastor the church that I got saved in, that yeah. reached out to me. Yeah. And so right here on the street, um, right there on, on the, yeah. where the, the arch is and up there where the bank is, we set up speakers and, uh, and we get people to testify and speak and, and, uh, and, and, and uh, share their story. Wow. Your family, what's your family now, Tony? Uh, my family, as in my marriage? Yes. Yeah, my, my beautiful wife. We've been married now for 14 years and uh, six children. And uh, yeah, she's the love of my life. This, yeah. my, you know, my, my, my best fan, you know, my biggest fan. Tony, there'll be those watching this who are thinking about faith and wondering what they should do and wondering whether they believe. How do you respond to that? I, I often say to people to ask God yourself, you know, and to really, if you're genuinely seeking, to ask Him, He's there. 
All right. Um, I I grew up believing one thing. I've been spoken and, uh, and and taught another, and so I came to the place where I just I just said, God, you know, I'm going to humble myself, and I'm going to cry out to you, and you need to answer me. And so God, in a moment of time, He responded. Right, and even through the mess of my life, He turned my mess into a message. But in that point, He said, Tony, I op I don't operate in time. I operate in eternity, and I see your heart. And once it's humbled. That's where I can begin to move. You can know who I am if you will humble your heart and ask me. And God, the Bible says, ask and you shall receive and seek you will find. And, and I would encourage every person that I meet and come in contact with, ask God yourself. This podcast is brought to you by the Ministry of Olive Tree Media. Our vision is to create a library of resources that tell the story of the game-changing message of Jesus. This interview was recorded for our latest documentary, Faith Runs Deep. Our other award-winning series, Jesus the Game Changer and Towards Belief, plus many other small group, church and school series are available on our Watch Plus platform for a small monthly partnership. As you partner with us, you not only get access to compelling video content and interactive discussion guides, but you also support the creation of more resources that help share the gospel message. To become a partner and get access to Faith Runs Deep, visit olivetreemedia.com.au. When you first moved here, what did you notice about this area from an um, ethnicity point of view? Well, it was all basically Asians. Mm. And so it's like they spot the white guy out. Okay, wow. And so all the signage would be in past times, um, all Chinese and Vietnamese writing. So yeah. English people wouldn't even know. Yeah. And so I think council at that time uh, was like, hey, you need to come out with the right signage. Wow. So Tony, what's the, what's the makeup now over all these years? Um, what's the makeup of these, this community? Yeah, so um, uh, before the Vietnamese came, there were it was the Greeks and okay. Europeans, and so when the Asians came, I guess we settled here, mm -hmm. and Cabramatta began to be a sort of Chinatown that uh, was inside Sydney. If you wanted to see a real, you know, um, and have a real experience of uh, a little Chinatown, that would be Cabramatta. Right, right. And so it's just uh, there were there were a uh, there there were Vietnamese, Chinese, Cambodians, and Laosians. Mm -hmm. Mainly, uh, that that would make up the, the the bulk of the demographic. Okay. And and do you think is it changing much now? Like it's 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 still mostly Asian. Still mostly Asian. It's uh it's the Asian invasion. Yeah. <laughs> and so Cabramatta is is still it's still Cabramatta. Yep. So yep. it's uh you know uh, but um there are other shops, more eateries going on. Yes. How do you think that, like, if, if you compare this area with that kind of ethnic mix, how would you compare that to, say, you know, somewhere like um, somewhere else in Sydney that was a bit more white Anglo? Yeah, so I've, I've had um, some guys comment, whether they've come from Melbourne or, you know, Western Australia, but coming through here is like they've stepped into another world. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, you know, it's like they've just stepped into to another, you know, no, another nation. Yep. So there's parts of Cabramatta that are filled. And you, 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 you can you can film through there and think, okay, it's not even Australia. Yes, yes, yeah. How do you do? As as someone who you were born here, parents came out on a boat. 
how do you def define Australia? For you, what does Australia mean? Is that is that awkward when you live in a community like this that's so Asian? Uh, uh, for me, a second generation Vietnamese mm. born in Australia, Australia's like home to me. Yeah. So Cabramatta is like home in the home, you know. And yep. So it's um, you know it's 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 to a sense I don't know anything else. Yeah. Yeah. So Australia is a place where it's given my parents opportunity, yep. myself opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, just really grateful for you know. Do you link it all with the the, um, the Vietnamese like Vietnam? Do you link it all with Vietnam as a nation or as a people or as a as a culture? Um, I think for most, uh, Cabramatta will be predominantly Vietnamese and mm -hmm. Chinese. Mm -hmm. Whereas to if you would go to perhaps um, Strathfield, yep, there will be more um, you know Koreans. Yep. And so you know they'll, they'll congregate differently. Yes. Yes. So yeah, I would um, I would uh, see Cabramatta as a little ch Vietnam. Yeah. yeah. Did, you, did you go back to Vietnam? Have you been? To I have. I have. Yeah. What was it like? First time was in 2012, and uh, it was a it was a radical experience. Yeah. I was excited to go and see where you know I came from, and um, yeah, we spent 10 days there. Yep. And uh, because I come from a place in Vietnam that speaks a different dialect. Yes. Which is not the main uh, dialect of, I guess, the South, you know? Yep. So it's, um, so speaking it, it's, uh, people are a bit, a bit odd, you know? They okay. can tell I'm, okay. I'm Australian. <laughs> yeah. They can tell I come from yep. Australia, but hey, you're speaking a different kind of yeah. Vietnamese yeah. dialect. What you, when you went back and as you th think about the history and the fact that your parents flee, what did you think about the Vietnam War? Uh, this is an interesting thing because my parents coming over, we never spoke about the war. Okay. And so, well, they never spoke about it. Yep. The only thing I knew about the war was actually what I learned in school. Okay. Yeah. What I researched. Never first-hand stories from mum and dad. Okay. Wow. What about the community? Do they talk about it at all? Um, no, I think for the Vietnamese people, you, we're, we're, we're resilient in the sense we want to move on. Yes. Yes. And uh, and so the difficult period in the 80s or 90s trying to assimilate into Cabramatta was, yeah. okay, well, how can we make this work yeah. uh, being in a new nation, not speaking the language? It's so interesting, Tony, because my dad came out of Germany after the Second World War. Yep. And a very similar experience because uh, uh, he met my mum and married in Australia and uh, we never talked about Germany really. He never spoke German at home and he never went back. And it was that, it's, it's kind of a bit what you were saying, it's like it was so traumatic. It seemed to me you just want to put it all behind him. Yeah, and it's and like home, you're making a new home. Yeah, yeah. And so while uh, a lot of them came with nothing. Yeah. And yeah. so they worked and uh, often work very hard. Yeah. To, yeah. you know, achieve and, and try to have what they have today and give their kids a brighter future, you know, which is what, what they've done. What about your children? What do they think about <laughs> their Viet Vietnamese what? background? Yeah, so uh, I speak English at home. Yeah. And so they, you know, as much as we try to keep the culture in, we bring them to grandma's house, you know. Yep, yep. Um, but uh, for them, they're same deal. They they, they, they don't pronounce it properly. <laughs> okay, it's, yeah. It's yep. Vietnamese. <laughs> okay. Dad, are we Vietnamese? <laughs> no, no, we're Vietnamese. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they're Aussie ass. Yeah. Do you want to keep any of that? I. Uh, yeah, absolutely. There's always an, I guess, a heritage. We to know where we came from um, mm. is is important. 
that uh, you know history teaches us things and so I, I guess um, 100% we uh, I do want to uh, have that knowledge obviously continue on in the lineage absolutely but coming to Australia here I guess it's no longer Vietnamese culture it's no yep. longer you know uh, um, uh, Australian culture yep. I guess it's Christian culture yes kingdom culture yes, yes. so that's my for my children uh, that's what they grow in Yep. And I absolutely, for them to know where they came from is, is vitally important. Wonderful. But for more so, a heavenly culture. Yeah. Yeah. Tony, we're here in the church that you run, which is the Potter's House, and you actually reach into a whole bunch of different ethnic groups, including the Vietnamese. What's the response to the message of Jesus in those community groups? Yeah, I think it's, um, in general, it's, it's been good. Um, the last 33 years the church has been here. Um, but in my experience, um, reaching out to the uh, Vietnamese, especially with the refugee story, not only um, connects with those that have come in over, but um, I guess those of different nations coming into Australia. And so I often share my story, and uh, that was probably one of the, I guess, uh, effective ways of sharing their gospel. Because yeah. there, there's this notion that, um, Australia had a, a kind of Christian background coming out of the UK and you've got numbers of groups of people like the Vietnamese coming and they don't have a Christian background so therefore they're not interested in the Christian message. That's not your experience? No, no. So, so people are connected to story, I think, per personalities that if they can see, experience and hear something that is real and they can see the change from A to B, I think a personal narrative of, uh, of their experience seeing that happen is something that's powerful. Yeah. Your church here is continuing to grow. You're planting new churches? Yeah, yes. And so the, the call is to go into all the world, preach the gospel, and, uh, and that's what we do. And so um, every year, uh, the whole goal is to raise up disciples uh, that would have a heart to, for the lost and that would go and represent and, and express Christ's love to the nations. When you plant churches from here, what are the, what's the ethnic mix of the churches that you plant? Uh, multicultural. So we have anyone from, uh, you know, Jordan to Syrians to Polynesians and all throughout the islands. And so uh, very multicultural. Which is the toughest group to, to respond to the message of Jesus? I think the Aussies. <laughs> right. uh, we have a thing that, uh, you know, uh, between the pastors in Australia, we get together every once a year and, uh, and come, um, I speak to many of them. And so when we're getting Aussies saved, it's like, hey, bro, I've got an Aussie saved. <laughs> and it becomes like sort of a joke in that sense that, hey, yeah, this works for everybody. Yeah. Tony, here at the church you run, the, the Potter's House, and uh, you came to faith in a really remarkable way. And you're also seeking to serve the community in, in different ways. What, what areas of the community are you serving? Um, a, a lot of the young people. And so where I look back in my life, where it all went wrong for me is role models and you know, people guiding me when I was at a very young age. And so we uh, run chaplaincy uh, within schools in the area and also work with um, shopping malls mm. and the other community groups to engage these young people. Yeah. What and, are the things that those young people face? Um, just fatherlessness, right? One of the things is men, they need, they need uh, examples of what a man looks like, not only a man, a godly man. Mm. 
right? And a lot of the children uh, in the streets, they don't have a good example of what a father looks like or what a husband looks like. And, you know, we seek to model that, not only preach it, but so they can see and connect dots real, real life and uh, with the word. And that's something powerful that comes out of that. In your own story, not having a good connection with your dad actually meant gangs and drugs. Is, is that still happening? Uh, I believe so, you know, and uh, that's uh, one of the main reasons why young people join gangs is because they're looking for acceptance and they're basically finding in the wrong place. Whereas if they had that, uh, um, that structure at home, uh, then the blessing begins to flow. But you break down that structure, you break down the community because strong communities are made up of strong families. And so um, you see that uh, still happening today. In, in the schools and in, in, in as a chaplain, you can't really replace a dad, but you can help. Yeah, you, you can. And so I'll, 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 sometimes people just want a, a, an, an, an ear yeah. and they just want someone to know that really deep down they do care. Mm. And so a part of that pastoral role inside of a school is to offer that. Mm. And, uh, and that works wonders because a lot of times young people don't want to speak to a counsellor or a teacher or an authority figure, but they will speak to you. Yeah. Why aren't the fathers present? There's numbers of reasons and that one, one glove doesn't fit all, but um, generally my experience, dad was always working. He was out there and in his mind, he's providing for the family. He loves the family, but reality, he's not giving the family what he needs, which is time. It's words of affirmation. And so a lot of that uh, uh, working with young people is uh, the other, I guess, layer to that is that they've, they've, they don't know their father. Dad's just got up and left. He's never grown up. He's never taken on responsibility. And so that curse begins to flow down to the, through the generations. Yeah. And so that's what I'm finding now. So there's two parts to what I do. One is the, the prevention that is in the schools, educating them about what a man looks like and uh, that uh, to find good role models. Yeah. And the other side to that is the jails. Yeah. And so that's a hard thing because they've already made wrong decisions, but the hope of the gospel is that uh, it's never too late. Yeah. Redemption is there, hope is there. Yeah. And so I often go into jails sharing the story and, and, uh, and, and uh, giving them hope in that sense. What's the response in a, in a setting like a jail? It's phenomenal. It's a captive audience. <laughs> not, not going anywhere. So, uh, but um, they, they're there. They know, they're, I don't have to convince them that uh, they've done wrong. Yeah. And, uh, and so they're ready in that space to cry out for more. There must be more. And so in that space there, I really enjoy because there is brokenness. And Christ is drawn to brokenness. He's drawn to humility. And it's in that space that they actually really think about okay, well, if this is true, can my life change? Uh, is there hope? And the answer is yes. Yeah. Drug abuse and drug dealing was part of your background, but you're also now uh, spending time in rehab centres? Yeah, so um, the jails and the rehabs, and so a lot of times the guys in jail will filter through the rehabs mm -hmm. as a part of, a, you know, I'm going to rehabilitate, I'm going to get off drugs. And so uh, that's another good space there before they come out of the the, the rehab to assimilate back in the community. So a lot of them just need that support, which what we you know, supply as the church yeah. in our various areas, that they can come out and link up and continue their journey. Yeah. You're also releasing young people in the community to influence the community through rap and music and creativity. What are the sorts of things they do? 
Yeah, so I, a, a bit of the background to that. When Jesus said to go into all the world, he gave us the why, but he didn't give us the how. Yeah. And so as a fisherman, he's like, hey, well, let's, what kind of lure do we use? Um, what is the thing to reach their generation? And so I've leave it to their hands and they, they go on the street. They are a, lot of, they're, a lot of them are musical, so they grab some music and they change the lyrics and they just get on there and, uh, and they, they perform on the streets. And uh, they, they preach the gospel in the street. They testify of what God's done in their lives. And that has been a, a great impact in the community. Yeah. Again, it, the culture. So it, Vietnamese culture is drawn to the same sort of music? Um, probably different kind of music <laughs> other yeah. than rap. Yeah. Right. But I think what works universally is the story of a changed life. Mm. And that's transformation. And so we often get them on the street, on the mic, in their own language to share what God has done for them. And uh, it's amazing to see because you can tell those cultures that can hear in their own language turn around and captivated about what are these young people talking about? And what's surprising is that these young people ought to be out there, you know, generally running amok, but rather they're there testifying on what God's done in their lives. That is a powerful scene. Tony, this series is called Faith Runs Deep. How do you see faith running deep? in Australia? I see and uh, in the eyes of faith that God will bring revival to Australia and that our faith and that uh, God can begin to bring revival to each and every community where we can see communities transform, where police will be scratching their heads thinking, where's all the work? Where God can begin to just transform a nation and from this nation, a blessed nation with all the resources and all the cultures of the world, where I can really see the Great Commission fulfilled in all the world, where we can plant churches uh, and uh, with people and sending them back to their nations with their Australian passport. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But uh, I I believe that God's going to use, uh, especially Australia in the last days of revival, to raise up another generation that will not only think about their own backyard, but the world. And we have the resources for that. And uh, we speak the language, English, (laughs) but also our native language. And so I'm believing uh, that's how God's going to be be able to use Australia. And uh, that we play a important part in the last days of revival. Thank you for joining me on this podcast as I unearth stories of faith in Australia. To watch the full Faith Runs Deep series and all Olive Tree Media content, go to olivetreemedia.com.au and sign up to the Watch Plus platform and partner with us today.